Good morning. Today's reading will be from John 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This concludes the reading of God's word. I want to ask you to identify yourself if you think you've fallen prey to this. But (laughs) one of the best marketing techniques in business is creating a sense of need that you didn't even realize you had. Do you know what I'm talking about? Apple is really good at this. Uh, when When I was in high school 20 years ago, I did not live, well, that makes me feel old. That's 20 years ago. I didn't live with with this urgent sense of need for a smartphone, you know? I didn't. Didn't even know it was a thing, but but now it feels like an absolute necessity. Like I need food, I need water, I need a smartphone. 
You know, I, I can be minding my own business, feeling rather content, watching some March Madness when, when I see a commercial for the new 2021 Chevy Equinox. With all sorts of features, my 2012 lacks. And until that moment, I didn't realize I needed a new car, right? But I see that, and now I do. You know, I, I can feel quite content with my current wardrobe. I'll let you decide if you think I should be. Until I receive an email, you know, spring break week, they always come out from Banana Republic telling me they just released a new fabric for their chinos, their pants. I didn't wake up today feeling a need for new pants. Some of you guys need to wake up and feel a need for new pants. But I did it. And yet I catch myself a few days later remembering that email and making a list of mental reasons I need a new pair of pants. And, and when you step back and think about all this, right? I mean, I could keep going. Just, just plug in your own illustration, okay? People got along just fine centuries before there were iPhone 12s or Chevy Equinoxes or what do they call it? Rapid movement chinos. The, the, arguably those things are wants, not needs. I mean, some of you are getting good at making a case that wants are needs because you need a spouse or a parent to, to fund that want. But, but let's be honest, okay? The vast majority of things, I'm willing to bet, that you and I feel like we need in a given week are not really necessary in the least. First Timothy 6 verse 8 is right, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Friends, there is one thing and only one thing that is absolutely necessary in this life. And it's not food. It's not clothing. It's faith in Jesus. Nothing else is even remotely in that category. When King David wrote Psalm 27.4, he, he was neither falling prey to religious marketing nor exaggerating his spiritual needs. I want you to listen to this. He, he was recognizing that one thing is absolutely necessary. Okay, for all people in all places and all times since the day the world began, one thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Could, could you say that with integrity? Not that there's nothing else you desire. Clearly, there are plenty of other things David desired, including some things he shouldn't have. 
But, but above it all, by the grace of God, he knew there is one thing that exceeds everything else in worth and value. And it was the Lord. Which makes me ask, should make you ask, what is it that makes this right relationship with Jesus thing so important? Why is that so important, Matthew? Well, I'm glad you ask, because that is the message of John 8, verse 12 through verse 30. Okay? And the answer, in essence, is this. Believing Jesus is an absolute necessity on account of his unique identity as the son of God. Why why do I say that is one thing and only one thing is absolutely necessary for every man and woman? And it's faith in Jesus. I say that because the word says that and the reason the word says that is because of Jesus' utterly unique identity. Personhood as the son of God. And the Apostle John helps us recognize that by, with all that's going on here, and there's a lot going on here, giving us two big warnings that Jesus himself gave. And I hope you realize as we work through these that, that they really are expressions of God's love for you, friend. That the Lord doesn't issue warnings to us here or anywhere else in scripture to, to manipulate us through fear. He issues warnings to us because he cares for us. Because he loves us. And he wants us to experience the life that's only found in him. So let's look at these two warnings. Warning number one. Follow Jesus as the light of the world. Or you will walk in darkness. First warning. Follow Jesus as the light of the world. Or you will walk in darkness. We know from verse 20 that Jesus is teaching in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, He's he's continuing a conversation that he actually began way back at the beginning of chapter seven. And that feast was an annual festival that included, among other things, significant lighting ceremonies. So light was a big part of the festival. And that makes sense because a big part of the Feast of Tabernacles was remembering how God led his people out of slavery in Egypt by a pillar of fire. And it's in that context, okay, quite possibly surrounded by what historians describe as these great cauldrons of fire in the courtyard of the temple, that Jesus speaks the words of verse 12. Look there. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Can you imagine Jesus saying that, surrounded by all these lights? I am the light of the world. And that's, if you've been tracking, that's the second of seven I am sayings in John's gospel. And each one of them teaches us something different about the nature of Jesus' person and work. So, so in what sense is Jesus, this is the big question, the light of the world? We could spend a long time on this, but I'll just give you a few examples, okay? Jesus is is the light of the world in the sense that he reveals what is true about God and man. Okay, So, so is the created universe, the world that we live in, requires what? Physical light in order for it to be seen for what it is, 
Okay, so too Jesus enables us to, to see spiritual and material reality for what it is. We can't see that apart from him. Why not? Because he alone can remove the veil from our eyes. Undoing the blinding effects of our disobedience and rebellion against God. And, and exposing both our need for a savior and the might of his power to save. And as the light of the world, he shows us the path of eternal life. He illuminates that path of healing from all that our sin has made wrong. And as the light of the world, he, he guides us, guides our feet into the way of peace with God and men. Through his, his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus has, has done what? He's, he's made a way, the only way, for, for us to see the light of God's face, that the smile of his favor, instead of being consumed by the fury of his wrath. But Jesus is not the light, hear this, in the sense that, that he delivers some sort of special religious knowledge or, or insight that can be separated from himself. Okay, as if he's just kind of a, a messenger of truth or true goodies. Okay, that's, that's not at all the case. Leon Morris is right. Listen, light is not a separable entity that may be possessed in itself. It is not an objective revelation that people may receive and hug to themselves. Jesus is the light. To have light is to have Jesus. Hear that. There is no light apart from a right relationship to him. What's that relationship look like? How do you know if you're in that right relationship? Well, Jesus tells us, same verse, experiencing Jesus as the light requires a whole lot more than just viewing him as a spiritually inspiring person. Or as a good moral example. Okay, it requires a decision to what? To follow him. To follow him. What's that mean? No matter how good you think you are, no matter how smart you think you are, how much you, th you think you understand what is true about God or yourself or the world in which you live, know this friend, you do not have the light of life. You have no knowledge of what is ultimately true or any power to live accordingly unless you are faithfully following Jesus. Period. Obeying his commands in every area of life. Jesus is not some kind of religious commodity that you pull off a shelf and you can tap into like a favorite keg or something anytime you feel a need for a little spiritual emotional pick-me-up. It's not Jesus. He's what? He's a Lord to whom we must joyfully submit. We follow him. Until you are willing to follow him, you'll never know him as the light. But what blew the Pharisees' minds? Because this whole section, if you break it down, it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it all builds up to the end of chapter eight when they want to stone him. What, what blew the Jewish leaders' minds, however, was not that he was saying, God is the light of the world. 
okay? They, they knew Psalm 27 verse one, which says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. They would have been completely on board if Jesus had said, the Lord is the light of the world. Of course he is. We know Yahweh, but that's not what Jesus said. He went further. He went a lot further. He didn't say, God is the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. What's he doing? What, what Yahweh had revealed about himself to his people as their light from centuries past, Jesus was now claiming for himself. Uh-oh. <laughs> and so what do the religious leaders do? Yellow flag, technical. <laughs> you can't do that, Jesus. Out of bounds. You can't bear witness about yourself because the law requires at least two witnesses in order to establish the truth of a matter. You have no legal standing, Jesus, to make such a sweeping claim about your identity. Stop it. Nice way of saying that. And, and Jesus' reply here, friends, I mean, if, if you want a picture of a devastating rebuttal, all you debate people out there, this is it. Okay, listen to what he says. Two parts. First, I don't need another witness in order for my words to be true. Why not? Because I know where I came from. I have a self-conscious awareness of my eternal existence with God the Father in heaven. And I know where I'm going. I, I have perfect knowledge of all that awaits me in the future, including my exaltation to the right hand of the Father as the Redeemer and King of the universe. I'm the all-knowing God. That's what he said. The omnipotent one, the omniscient one who speaks what is true because I know everything that is true because I am the truth. Drop mic. <laughs> I don't need another witness, but you guys don't realize any of that. You have no idea where I came from. You're not privy to any of the divine counsels of eternity past. You have no idea where I'm going. You have no firsthand knowledge of the future, but let's get one thing straight. Your lack of awareness of either one of those things does not diminish my glory in the least. It's true. The only reason you guys need multiple witnesses is because your human judgment is fraught with human weakness and sin. You, you judge, what does Jesus say? According to the flesh. I don't judge anyone like that because my judgments are according to the eternal wisdom of the Father. We speak, look at verse 16. We speak as one. It is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. It's an incredible example of what has been called in the history of the church, the, the inseparable operations of the Trinity, which means whatever the Father is doing, the Son is doing. Whatever the Son is doing, the Father is doing. I don't need another witness. Second, however, 
guys, even by the standards of your law, my testimony passes muster. Why does Jesus say that, you know? Okay, two witnesses required? Okay, that's exactly what I have. We've got what? My own testimony about myself and the God the Father's testimony about me. How, how's God the Father testifying about Jesus? Well, through prophets he sent like John the Baptist. Through the words he gave Jesus to speak. Through the miracles he ordained for Jesus to perform. Even through the way people responded to Jesus. Giving him the worship and adoration that God alone deserves. All of that is the Father bearing witness to the truth of Christ's identity. But you know, the Pharisees, religious leaders, they had no category for anything like that. For for Yahweh coming to earth as a man. This isn't Yahweh, you're, you're Jesus, the man. And you were born in rather suspicious circumstances, if I might say so. They, they couldn't dream of including a man within the strict confines of Jewish monotheism. Couldn't imagine that. And so they scornfully reply, all right then, bring this second witness of yours. Where's your father? It's not a neutral question. And there's tremendous irony in that question, friends. As if, as if God the Father even needed to be summoned into the temple of his dwelling place. No idea. And so Jesus puts his finger on the crux of the issue. Look at verse 19. Guys, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Every one of these is just like a grenade of truth going off. If this were an action movie, it would be nonstop explosions. Because Jesus is saying two really important things here, friends. Okay? Two things that, that are, are the foundation of Orthodox Christianity. What's that? First, there are personal distinctions in God. Okay? God the Son and God the Father are two distinct persons. It's implicit in Jesus' words. In the way he refers in verse 17 to his testimony and the Father's testimony as the testimony of what? Look there. How many people? Two people. Two people. It's why we worship God as a trinity, which is what Christians mean when they refer to one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you even see that again in verse 19 where where Jesus speaks about himself as a different person than the Father. So there there are personal distinctions in God. That's foundation one. Here's the second. Given that, at the same time, there is also unity in God. Okay, unity of being God. God. God the Son is the perfect revelation of God the Father. Why? Because he shares the same divine nature as the Father. He's not less than the Father because he's the Son. All that the Father is, the Son is. And that doesn't mean they do all the exact same things or fulfill all the same functions. It does mean they share the exact same nature. There is no divine attribute that God the Father has that God the Son lacks. That's critical 
We got to remember that. And here's why. Because I can just sense as we waded into this deep pool, even in my own mind, all right, what difference does any of this make tomorrow morning at six? Well, (laughs) it matters exceedingly, friends. Let me explain why. Because it it is Jesus' utterly unique nature as the Son of God incarnate that makes him exceedingly worthy of your devotion. This isn't just like a, oh, thanks for going to seminary to track with all that, pastor. No, what I have just said about Jesus, triune God, that is what makes him exceedingly worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your obedience this week, friend, not just because of the glory of his work, which we're gonna celebrate big time on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but because of the glory of his person, okay? Three-word summary of the middle of John 8, the best I could do is this. Jesus is God. He's God. And nothing will impact what you think or feel and do on a very practical level more than standing in awe of him because he is God. It's critical. And furthermore, okay, the the fact that to know Jesus, don't miss this, is to know the Father reminds us in a very confused age that there are not multiple paths to God or multiple ways to the divine. It sounds tolerant and peaceful, even humble to say what? None of us have a corner on the truth. Every religion probably gets some part of this whole thing right. So let's just kind of learn from everybody and make a personal smoothie. Well, when, when you find yourself thinking like that, Because it's easy to start thinking like that. Or maybe you're talking with somebody who is thinking like that. Remember this, okay? To say as much is to call Jesus a liar. He leaves us no room for that conviction. Because he says in no uncertain terms to, to a people who were convinced they knew God, right? That because they rejected Jesus, they didn't know God at all. That hasn't changed today, friends. That the God with whom we have to do has not left it up to us or up to you to to select your preferred pathway to finding him. He's made himself known in one way and one way only. And that's in the person of Jesus. Yes, that is radically exclusive. Yes, that is incredibly intolerant. Yes, that violates all of our postmodern sensibilities. And yes, that is the most loving thing you could ever say to somebody. Because it's true. And these religious leaders, they hated his words. Look at verse 20. How dare you assert we don't know the Father? And yet, verse 20, no one arrested him because the hour of his death, ordained by God the Father from eternity past, had yet to arrive. What what is that scream? That even in their unbelief, the Lord remained in complete control. 
You ever been in a situation, maybe even your own family or even in your own heart where you feel like unbelief inside of you or around you, failing faith within you or outside of you has just taken the, the wheel of your life and your world and is running it into a ditch. I felt that. Friend, remember this. Even at the height of unbelief, verse 20, your sovereign God reigns. The providence of God extends entirely over the wicked unbelief of men. And that's the darkness into which every one of us is born. But, but it need not be the darkness in which you remain, my friend. To, to reject Jesus is what? To have no knowledge of the truth, no unshakable hope for the future, no enduring reason for living, no lasting joy, no deliverance from guilt in your conscience, no freedom from slavery to sinful desires, and no hope of life after death. If you walk in darkness, you will never know the light of God's favor. That's what Jesus is saying. But if you're willing to follow Jesus, okay, there's, a, there's a promise in this warning, right? Not just on your Facebook profile or when it's, when it's convenient or makes your parents think well of you, but, but even when his commands make little to no sense to you or the world around you, then and only then will you find Jesus as you follow him to be the light of life, friend. There's no other option. There's no middle path where you kind of have blended loyalties. You, you either walk in darkness and have the light of life, don't have the light of life, or you follow Jesus and you do have the light of life. Bottom line, don't be, think of it this way, in a spiritual sense, like a blind man who fiercely denies the reality of light just because he's never seen it. Come to Jesus. Okay, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and you will find him to be what? Everything he says he is, and immeasurably more, starting with the fact he's the light of the world. That's warning number one. Here's warning number two, okay? Warning two, trust Jesus as the God who saves, or you will die in your sin. Look at verse 21. Back and forth continues. So he said to them again. You know why I love that word? Because it screams of the mercy of God. You ever think about that? Did he have to say that again? Does he have to remind you, Christian, of the same truths that you've heard before and forgotten a thousand times and that's why you're still in trouble or in new trouble? No. He's a merciful God. And in his mercy, verse 21, Jesus makes a turn. He, he takes all he said in verses 12 to 20 about the truthfulness of his words, the light of the world, and he, and he raises the stakes, as it were, for how we choose to respond to him. So think of the first part as, here's why you can know what I'm saying is true. Part two, here's why your response to that is vitally important. 
And at every point in the second half, he emphasizes the utter uniqueness of his divine identity. Look at verse 21. When Jesus says here, I am going away, he's speaking literally. Doesn't always speak literally, but he does here, okay? Before too long, he would be cut off from the land of the living, crucified on account of the sin of the world, only to rise from the grave and then ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And after all of that goes down, Jesus says, the Jews are going to what? Continue looking and waiting for a Messiah. A savior who, who would make right all that our sin has made wrong in this world. But, but they would wait in vain because they failed to recognize Jesus was the Messiah. And so as a result, Jesus says, you will die in your sin. Those are among the most frightening words this entire chapter, friends. Because that's still happening today. And it could happen to you tonight. What sin is he talking about? It's not plural, it's singular. The sin of what? Well, in context, it's the sin of unbelief, isn't it? It's a failure to believe Jesus is who he says he is. And, and that becomes the, the headwaters from which, which a thousand polluted springs flow. It, it's why sin in the singular in verse 21 leads to sins in the plural in verse 24. But the most terrifying implication of it all comes at the end of verse 21. Look there. Where I am going... You cannot come. Do you realize that seeing the face of God is the most satisfying experience in the entire universe, friends, if you're his child? And as a result, for God himself to tell you, you can never and will never be with me. That, that is the greatest sorrow that could ever befall somebody. But why did Jesus say, think about this, to, to these deeply religious people, you can't enter the internal joy of life in the presence of God in heaven. They were deeply religious. They showed up every Sunday to church. Well, it's because life with God requires faith in Jesus. A, a faith that never took root in their cold, unbelieving hearts. To die in your sin is to die without trusting Jesus to deliver you from the judgment of God against your sin. And that also means what? Entering into immediately when you die an experience of conscious, eternal suffering under the righteous wrath of God. If you just think about that briefly, Terrifying. Eternal. Never ending. 
that the Pharisees couldn't conceive of anyone like themselves not going to heaven. (laughs) But they could conceive of plenty of those people, other people, going to hell, including, so they thought, people who committed suicide. Hence their question in verse 22, will he kill himself? And Jesus turns their attention right back to the root issue in verse 23, as long as you refuse to recognize my authority and believe me accordingly, you are not part of the kingdom of God. You're part of this world. As smart and as religious and as spiritual as you think you are, until you believe Jesus is God, you are still blind to the truth. You're you're allied with sinful man, rebelling against your creator. And there's only one alternative. Look at verse 24. What is it? You must, verse 24, believe that I am he. You must believe, ego me. And that was not the first time Israel had heard those words. Okay, because 700 years earlier, what did the prophet Isaiah write? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that ego me. I'm he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Friends, when Jesus appropriates that for himself, what is he saying? He is saying to you that there is no salvation to be found through faith in Jesus as good teacher or moral example. Doesn't exist. There's only salvation through faith in Jesus as the son of God. And so when Jesus says, you must believe that I am he, he's he's not only just reaching back to the words of Isaiah, but he's reaching back even further to the words of Exodus 3, where the Lord revealed his divine name to Moses and identified himself, Yahweh, as the great I am. And so Jesus, for those who had ears to hear, and eventually they get this, which is why at the end of the chapter, they try to stone him. He was saying in no uncertain terms, Yahweh is standing in front of you. That was mind-blowing for them. It made no sense. And yet... He spoke the truth because God had come in human flesh to do what only God can do, to save his people from their sins. Jesus doesn't give us room, in other words, to decide what we want him to be. He won't tolerate a a Christology from below. He, He tells us who he is. Namely, I am God. And either you believe he is God and trust him to save you accordingly, or you will die in your sins. The choice is yours, friends. And just to emphasize the importance of this, you know, the history of the church, even today, is full of all kinds of debates about all manner of, of different truth claims in the Bible. But, you know, what scripture say about this or about this? Or, you know, gender and sexuality are just the, the latest salvo. A very long debate 
between the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. But in all that argumentation and all those debates and blog posts, know, know this, above all that and in all that and underneath all that and through all that, there, there is one issue and one question and one decision that governs all, that governs all of that controversy. What is it? Is Jesus God or not? Is he God? Because if he is God, as he says he is, then everything else follows from that. And you know what? A lot of your other questions, if you settle that one, will have a funny way of working themselves out or at least falling into proper perspective. The Jews couldn't conceive of God in human flesh and their confusion overflows, verse 25, in one of the most honest questions in the entire conversation. Look there. So they said to him, I love this, who are you? <laughs> he just burst out, you know? You don't make sense. Who are you? It's the theme of the entire gospel of John in many ways. And, and Jesus' reply Verses 26 to 29. Friends, this is a treasure. In terms of what it reveals to us about the glory and person of his work. So we're going to go bullet point style because this is packed. Okay? First, who are you? Thanks for asking. Jesus is the sent one. Verse 26 who came into the world to declare to the world the good news of the Father's plan of salvation. Okay, a plan that, that God the Father had made known to him that he'd heard from the Father from eternity past. He's, he's not a nice son trying to placate an angry father. It was the Father who sent the Son in the first place. First thing he says. Second, the fullness of Jesus' glory is most clearly seen at the cross. Okay, we've got to linger on this one a little bit. The, the moment of his greatest humiliation would soon be the moment of his greatest exaltation. That's what he's saying. Because it, it's at the cross, friends, where we, where we see Jesus for who he really is. Look at verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. What's that? His crucifixion. Then you will know, ego, Amy. It's like action movie. <laughs> Why? Why? Why are those stunning words? Because Jesus is saying, no uncertain terms, that the place where the divine nature of the Son is most fully revealed in all his glorious splendor is the place where he looked most weak and shameful in the eyes of the cosmos. It's, it's where the great I am, the, the God who made himself known to Moses, the God who spoke through Isaiah, manifested the supremacy of his power in what appeared on Golgotha to be the height of weakness and shame. So how do we know what God is like? Maybe you've asked that. Maybe you've got a friend who's asking that. Here's Jesus' answer. He tells us, look at the cross. 
That's how you know what God is like. But behold, the severity of his justice and the magnitude of his mercy in the same act. But behold, the perfect son of man doing what? What only God could do, like laying down a life of infinite worth to atone for an infinite debt that we owed an infinitely holy God on account of our sin. It's at the cross that we see the great I am is a God who works for us a salvation we could never work for ourselves. It's at the cross we see the great I am as a God who is not removed from our suffering, but enters into our suffering so one day he can make an end to our suffering without making an end of you and me. It's at the cross we see the great I am as a God who knows the cost of obedience, who, who remained faithful unto death and, and is now able to help us whenever we're tempted. So what's Jesus saying? Verse 28, the fullness of my glory is most clearly seen and will always be most clearly seen at the cross where I died. And finally, third bullet, Jesus, who are you? He's not a rogue agent. He's the obedient son. Look back at verse 28 who does nothing on his own authority, but speaks and acts and feels and thinks and does and moves the whole thing in complete submission to the Father's will. Okay, in fact, the Father's will is his will. Why? Because they share the same divine nature. He always does and only does what is pleasing to the Father, verse 29, perfectly righteous in all his ways because he is perfectly obedient in all his ways and therefore save the hour of his death when he was forsaken on account of our sin, the Father never abandoned him. So Christian, here's what that means, okay? Realize if, if you have been united to Christ by faith, you share in those same privileges Jesus has. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is and because what he deserves is now what you deserve because you are a co-heir with Christ. The same God who was always with Jesus by the spirit remains with you by the same spirit. He's not gonna leave you alone, Christian. Not, not because you always do the things that are pleasing to him. You don't but because Jesus did everything that's pleasing to him on your behalf. Remember, he didn't just die in your place. He obeyed in your place. And, and now the father, th this, is, this is the scandal of the gospel. Now the father is no more able to stop delighting in you, Christian, than he's able to stop delighting in his son, Jesus. And the same delight that the father has in the manifold excellency of his perfections he now has in you because you're in Christ. Stunning. You need not die in your sins, friend. You should trust Jesus as the God who saves. That's the second warning. And here's where that leaves us. Jesus' identity as the Son of God is utterly unique. No one else in the universe is who he is. No one like him, none compares to him. And so, so what the father declares in Isaiah 45, 21, Jesus claims for himself in John 8. Listen, there is no other God besides me, 
a righteous God and a savior. There's none besides me. Very simply, either you will follow him as the light of the world or you walk in darkness. You will trust him as the God who saves or you will die in your sins. But believing Jesus is an absolute necessity on account of his unique identity. And the Lord is kind to warn us in that way, friends. So kind. So don't wait or hold back. Don't don't ignore Jesus or, or devote your life to other things other than Jesus as if you need those things more than you need him. It's not true. Nothing else is more necessary for your joy and your life than knowing and believing Jesus. So many people give very little thought to him as if he were were just another man, just another person. John 8 couldn't be more clear. You should trust and obey Jesus because he's God. Let's pray. Father, there are those of us who have heard before quite a few of the things that you have said to us through your word today. And it is oh so tempting for those of us to take all we have heard about you and put it in a box called I know Jesus and then stick it on a shelf. King Jesus, would you please deliver us from that temptation? Deliver us from that, Lord. Because we want, as your people, to stand in awe of you. We we want when we think, who is Jesus? For the first thing to come to our mind to be, Jesus is God. And I'm following him because he's God. Would you help us to to exclude, to push away all the lies that would, would contort you into a lifestyle option or a religious worldview or what works for my spouse, but not me? Open our eyes to not miss the absolute necessity of the simplest parts of our faith. Jesus, you're God. Help us to follow you that way. Amen.